we witnessed something in the sky that I can only describe as a very bright light. If it was at 30,000 feet, the speed which it shot off must have been around Mach 30 or 40. It was just incredible. Welcome to Merge. I'm Ryan Graves. Today, we're joined by Christian Van Heist. Christian is a Dutch airline pilot who's been flying since the age of 14. He started his career flying turboprops in Africa and Afghanistan, then flew the Boeing 737 for four years and has been flying the Boeing 747 for the last 12 years. He's logged over 9,500 flight hours and is now captain on the 747. Parallel to his flying career, Christian is an award-winning photographer specializing in photography from the flight deck. Christian has caught a number of unidentified objects during his career. He's carefully logged each occurrence and has often been able to eventually explain what he sees. On other occasions, he has not. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Merge Podcast. And now, Christian Van Heist. Christian, uh, welcome. Uh, thanks for coming here today. And uh, where did you come in from today? Oh, first of all, thanks for having uh, thanks for having me. I just uh, flew in from the Netherlands, from Amsterdam. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy that I can, can be part of this podcast on such a short notice. Yeah, well, we certainly appreciate you being here. So, you're a pilot, and how long have you been flying? Yeah, I'm uh, now 39 years old. Um, I've been flying since I was 14. Uh, I started glider flying. It was uh, started as a, as a big interest in aviation, and as soon as I could, I started flying gliders. Soon afterwards, I started flying uh, for my PPL, which is the private pilot license, um, and uh, fortunately, I was able to get my first private pilot license just before I got my driver's license. <laughs> so it was definitely a big passion for me. Um, Sorry, you were flying before you even drove a car. Yeah, I, I even had to take a, a train and a taxi to the airport to get my uh, flying lessons. So uh, <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's how it started. Um, after high school, uh, I decided to study aeronautical engineering at the Polytechnic. I finished my bachelor. Um, but um, even though it was very interesting, uh, my heart was actually in, uh, in the cockpit. So I decided to basically quit aeronautical engineering study uh, after my uh, bachelor. And I proceeded to uh, continue with the professional fly flight training, which I finished when I was 20 years old. So you didn't, you didn't necessarily quit the degree, you just didn't continue to pursue that career necessarily and more engineering focus. Is Ex that accurate? Exactly, exactly. Because basically um, I, I was told by a lot of people that it was a wise thing to do to get my uh, engineering degree. But I really felt, especially after uh, two years after getting my bachelor, that this was not my uh, my uh, how do you say this like the the happy ending in my in my career. So um, after after obtaining the bachelor, I decided this was not for me, and I uh, I went where my heart was basically uh, telling me to go, which was the cockpit of the of an airplane. Interesting. So that's that's very similar to essentially my path as well. I did aerospace mechanical engineering, and was like, hey, I don't think I want a career in this for the rest of my life necessarily. Uh, and I went into aviation myself, of course. Um, so how did you actually get into aviation at that point? What was your next step? Uh, after I got my private pilot license, I managed to uh, get some flying hours. And uh, as I said, I, uh, I pursued the commercial pilot license just uh, shortly afterwards. Uh, but in, in Europe, it's very difficult to get a job. We don't have general aviation like you have in the States. So for a year, I had to do a lot of sightseeing flights and a lot of uh, cleaning hangars, etc. before I was finally invited for my first interview with a real airline. Uh, I was 20 years old and I was basically hired as a first officer, co-pilot on the uh, Fokker 50 turboprop, 
I will just refer to it as the F50 because I know how funny uh, the brand Fokker sounds in the English <laughs> language. Uh, you can imagine the jokes because the Fokker 50 is quite a slow airplane, so you can imagine the jokes over the radio. This is a family show, sir. Okay, <laughs> this is a family show. Good to know, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was hired as a co-pilot on the, on the F-50, which is a Dutch, uh, Dutch airplane, which was uh, really cool. Um, and that airline was basically specialized in leasing out their airplanes, including crew, to other companies. Okay. So while flying the F-50, I was flying for multiple uh, European airlines, but I, I was also flying for African airlines for uh, about uh, two years, both Saharan and Sub-Saharan, which was a really interesting operation, especially as a young pilot with uh, only a handful of hours under his belt. And most interestingly enough, we did a lot of contract work in Afghanistan. So we were flying military contracts, uh, VFR flying out of Kabul, and those those impressions have left uh, uh, their mark on me in a positive way. It was really uh, almost the highlight of my career, especially being so young, having all the freedom. So I did that for about two, two and a half years before I was able to move on. And I was hired as a first officer on the Boeing 737 for a Dutch well, airline. That's that's interesting. Let's, If we can, can we talk a little bit more about flying out of Kabul sure. in Afghanistan? So what, what did a normal mission look like for you flying around there? So you said VFR, so you're talking about flying in the day, good weather, you know, theoretically. Um, yeah, what, what what did those missions look like? Uh, the company was uh, hired by the Norwegian Army, if I'm not mistaken, and they were hired for roughly 80 hours a month, especially in the beginning, which was 2006, or early 2007. We only flew maybe 20 or 30 hours a month for the Norwegian Army, uh, but it was a, a really, really small world, especially being based in Kabul with all the nationalities mending together. So in the end, uh, when we were having coffee or later on in the evening, uh, having dinner or a beer, Many other people came towards us, both uh, the Danish, the Dutch, um, even the American uh, forces. And they basically asked us if we could fly maybe the next day another flight to another airport like Kunduz or uh, Kandahar, etc. And um, in the end, we flew not just the Norwegian army, but we basically flew anything and everywhere where someone else required us to go. Were you staying on a base? Yeah, we were based in uh, Kabul, on Kaya, which is the military base. And it's uh, it's like a big compound. We had our own sleeping containers there and our own little uh, corner where we could do uh, the maintenance for our airplane, etc. And uh, we were basically completely self-sufficient. And um, the boss didn't really care as long as we did the flights. And we finished all the flights before the end of the week. So mm -hmm. we had a lot of freedom there. Interesting. It, there's some beautiful land out there. Do you, do you have any experiences flying around there that you'd like to share? Well, uh, every day was just amazing. Um, we were based in Kabul, which is in the middle of the mountains, and we were flying mostly to uh, Mazar Sharif and Kunduz in the northern part of the country, Maimana. Uh, that means that we, we had to cross the mountains, the Hindukush Mountains, every flight we flew, um, and it's just absolutely mind-blowing. I, I didn't really have a picture of Afghanistan before I went there, but the moment I stepped out of the airplane, uh, I was just taken away by the by the scenery, and it, it's... Uh, it, it was just beautiful, and especially flying over there. And the F-50, it's not really powerful airplane, so we had to fly relatively low, sometimes in between the mountain peaks. And I was just glued to the window. It's just so incredibly wow. beautiful. And flying VFR means, uh, for the non-aviation viewers, means that we have to navigate by by sight and by, by basically looking out of the window. And that gave us also a lot of freedom. So especially after becoming familiar with the routes in the straight line going to the airports, we started to find our different ways along the mountains and just enjoying the scenery uh, as we went. And that was, especially with beautiful weather, it was it was mind-blowing. It was beautiful. Yeah, the ultimate low levels, I bet. Yeah, exactly. Very beautiful. What what time period was this again? 
Um, the company had a contract from 2006 until 2012, I think, but I only flew there in 2006 and 2008. Okay. I was flying uh, in Afghanistan um, in the 2012 timeframe, so it looks like we just missed each other. Yeah, I guess so. And yeah. There are uh, higher altitudes as well, I would imagine. But yeah. Yeah, we didn't get much higher than uh, 22,000 feet or something, so we were really low-level low level operating there. And how many other pilots like yourself are doing that? Uh, well, we had maybe 100 pilots in the company flying the F-50, and a handful of them, especially in the beginning, were volunteering to go to Afghanistan. Um, yeah, I guess in the end, maybe uh, half of them uh, went to Afghanistan, and especially after they came back with all the great stories, more and more people wanted to go to Afghanistan. Right. Because we were flying... Uh, a fleet of, I think, eight airplanes, and most of them were flying in Africa for different airlines, mm -hmm. and one of them was flying in Afghanistan. And after we came back with all the stories, uh, a lot of lot of other guys, they actually decided to give it a try and uh, just change the scenery from Nigeria to Afghanistan, which mm -hmm. was a welcome change for many people. Sounds like great flying. Um, did you ever have any emergencies there? So you're kind of, I imagine, once you leave the base and you're flying down low like that, you don't have a ton of options. Have you ever had any... Um, you know, complications on your flights, I'll say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, basically, this was also the stuff that we had to solve all by ourselves, especially um, the airplane was maintained by our own mechanic there, but sometimes spare parts were hard to get. Okay. So if you're flying over the mountains uh, and you have some systems acting up, you just have to make the best out of it. Uh, we were flying VUFR. Fortunately, I never had any engine failures there, but we basically f drew our own um, escape routes in case we have an engine failure. The mountains are literally just around you, so we had to find or basically plan our escape routes uh, through the valleys and through the mountains if we had an, uh, an engine failure. Again, fortunately, I didn't have that, but especially in the beginning, 2006, it was a, a very hot period in the sense of a lot of combat was going on, and we had some instances where we uh, had to run to the bunkers or actually uh, last minute aboard a landing because there was a terror attack or rocket attack on the, on the airport. So I didn't have any emergencies in the sense of, of, of uh, mechanical failures, but there was a lot of operational stuff going on that mm -hmm. was a, 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 that made it very interesting to fly there. I bet. Did, you, did your aircraft take any actual fire at any point? Um, well, the, the funny thing is with the F-50, uh, we were blessed not to have a, a, a radar warning system or a, an anti-missile system. So if they ever shot anything at us, uh, I'm, I'm blissfully, blissfully, how do you, <laughs> blissfully unaware. Um, but um, yeah, I guess there has been some some small small arms fire here yeah. and there. Come back um, with a couple extra holes you didn't take off with at the airplane. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, for the rest, I'm uh, uh, I'm happy that I, I never ex encountered any any real serious uh, uh, air to ground fire. We did have a couple of instances where we we were being um, targeted or shot while we were on the ground basically by unguided RPGs or mortar fire. And actually it makes sense because the airplanes are very vulnerable once they're on the ground. Yeah. And so we were parked next to all the F-16s, the Dutch F-16s uh, and Kabul. And we, it was pretty logical that this was an easy target for many of the uh, the freedom fighters or the, the, the people uh, fighting there in Afghanistan. So we had a couple of instances where they were, they were trying to hit our airplane, but they, they didn't even come close. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I'm uh, pretty lucky. Interesting. I think it was, gosh, was it 2012 or 2015? Those are my two deployments. I'll have to, I'll have to think about it. But um, there was a Marine Harrier squadron that was uh, lo located on the ground, 
everyone else that was really flying out there was from the aircraft carrier, including some Marine squadrons and the aircraft carrier and the Navy squadrons. And I forget exactly what it, when it was, but, but just like you said, um, when all the aircraft, of course, are on the ground, that's when they're the biggest target. And they actually overran the base, the Marine base, and ended up destroying uh, several Harriers uh, and killing a handful of people, including the commanding officer uh, of that Harrier squadron. Uh, was Steven aware of that? Was it Kandahar? Uh, I, I would have to look. I'm going to, whatever I say is going to be wrong. But um, uh, that that's, you know, that's the vulnerable part to have uh, jets on the ground. That's why we have aircraft carriers, you know. We can have it out in the middle of the ocean and we're protected out there. But sorry, just uh, filling in on your story a little bit. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely an operation that's not for the uh, 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 the faint of hearts. And it's uh, it was kind of interesting when we were flying there. And you're, especially as a young pilot, we were basically being thrown in the deep. Um, first of all, I was I was barely used to the airplane and barely used to to to, to fly commercially with a lot of pressure. And then all of a sudden, you have these operational uh, challenges that that come with it, especially in a war zone like Afghanistan. And I must say, I've been really lucky. I've never had any uh, extremely dangerous or scary situations. But you always have to be aware of of, of the fact that you're flying in a war zone. And in a sense, it made me. Um, the pilot that I am today, and it's something that I'm very grateful for because it gave, at least, it gave me a certain insight and experience that I could never have experienced anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And so, so then you left that. What year is this when you left doing that work? Um, I left in 2007 to uh, join a Dutch company on the 737, and uh, basically they hired me in summer and in winter. I took unpaid leave and I went back to Afghanistan okay. because I really missed the adventures on the F-50. And I was able to combine that for a short while. So in winter, I was flying the F-50 okay. uh, in uh, Africa and Afghanistan. In summer, I was flying the 737 with holiday passengers all over Europe. How, you know, we we skipped over a little bit, but how was it flying over Africa? Were you at a high altitude and it was kind of like anything else? Or were you down low and were there any interesting experiences? I can, I can probably write a book about that, but we were flying for multiple African airlines, uh, especially the Saharan Airlines, who were basically based out of a couple of uh, countries that were uh, mostly in the Saharan part. Uh, we were flying just normal passengers for their own airline, and that means that uh, we fly normal cruising altitudes and we fly to another airport and make a landing there. But a couple of times it happened as well that somebody approached us uh, while we were just uh, ready to, to board the airplane, and they gave us literally a piece of paper with some GPS coordinates. I say, well, you have to make a stop there as well. So basically, we, we had some VFR charts, which were largely white because it was literally unexplored areas still, yeah. no elevation known. So what we did, we just climbed to normal cruising altitudes and we put in the GPS coordinates in the really, really simple GPS receiver that we had. And the moment we started reaching our, uh, let's say, destination, we started the descent and we started to look out for anything that, that resembles something that looks like a runway. And uh, sometimes you see uh, like a gravel strip and you see a couple of people waving, you make a couple of low passes to make sure that all the all the people and uh, and sheep and uh, whatever they have there are scared of the runway you make a landing and that was really the cool stuff but most of the time we flew just to let's say regular airports mm -hmm. um, sometimes especially in the sub-saharan uh, countries literally in the middle of the jungle you have the jungle left and right and you have a little gravel strip there and that was uh, yeah that was really cool there was a uh, can we go back to the mysterious gps coordinates so what what happened here did you found the runway i assume yeah, but they were not really mysterious, but it was just one of the small uh, airstrips that they have okay. in the middle of nowhere. Just so uh, isolated. 
extremely isolated and you land there and all of a sudden you see this little uh, cloud of dust coming from the distance and there was a car who, who brought up uh, probably somebody who needed to go to hospital etc mm. so they were bumping over a dusty road and you load in the passengers and you go off again and i have no clue how these people know that we were coming <laughs> but basically uh, this is this is this was part of daily life there and it mm. was completely different to the kind of airline flying I did later in my career, but it was uh, extremely interesting. And you just have to improvise sometimes. You really have to um, have to uh, think ahead. And sometimes you just have to let things go because especially in Africa, there's not too much you can plan ahead. And it was it was really cool, especially as a young pilot, uh, like you said, blissfully unaware sometimes, but yeah. uh, really cool. Very interesting. Any interesting weather in Africa? Um, yeah. I had to fly around? Yeah, especially in Nigeria and around the equator. Uh, as you probably know, as an aviator, around the equator, there's these these huge thunderstorms, the ITCZ, which is the area where a lot of moist and, and, and uh, hot air is rising up rapidly, creating violent thunderstorms. And uh, if the weather is nice, flying in Africa is really nice. But if the weather is uh, is bad, it's, uh, it's a completely different experience. And I've seen some really, really uh, heavy weather there. And the F-50 was equipped with a with a modest weather radar, let's say, mm -hmm. not the best, but sometimes uh, you were just uh, holding on tight and hoping that the airplane would come out of the other side. Fortunately, the F-50 is a really, really uh, tough workhorse, so that was never an issue. But weather in Africa, especially in summer, it can be uh, quite something else. And I must say, I'm really happy that I flew there with a, such a tough airplane, especially in the beginning part of my career. So nowadays, I'm uh, I'm equipped with a lot of knowledge and experience that I wouldn't have have uh, gained if I was if I was only flying in the Netherlands. Let's say I bet. Wow, awesome! Thanks for getting back to that. Um, and so now you've kind of you've taken a step back from that again, right? It's, uh, or at least from flying in Afghanistan, and you're back at the airlines in the seven three. You said, um, and how long have you been in that position? I was flying the seven three seven in total for four and a half years. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was a really good experience. I must say, in the beginning, uh, was, um, I was missing the adventure and I was really missing the, uh, the operational flying we did on the, on the F-50. Because basically, I was coming from flying in, in Afghanistan, dodging bullets and RPGs. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in, the, in an airliner with 200 passengers to their holiday destination. And I really missed the adventure. In retrospect, uh, it, was a, it was one of the best moves I could make because... Um, I was getting too used to the adventure and I was getting too used to the non-standard type of flying. And flying the 737 for a, a really, really professional and good airline in, in the Netherlands uh, gave me the uh, operational uh, professionalism that I, uh, that I could only gain in the beginning part of my career. So I was flying there for four and a half years, gaining a lot of really valuable experience on a, uh, on a fast jet with the glass cockpits and um, in retrospect, it was just a perfect balance of flying two and a half years, let's say, uh, Indiana Jones type of adventures and four and a half years of flying for a really professional airline. And this laid the, the foundation for the rest of my career, I think. Mm -hmm. Very good. And then, uh, and I understand now you're in the 747? Yeah. In 2011, I was lucky enough to be hired as a first officer on the 747. I was uh, 27 years old, so it was pretty, pretty young for a 747 uh, operator. And um, yeah, this was just a dream coming true for me as a pilot, especially a young pilot. I'm just in love with the 747. It's it's a beautiful airplane. It's 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 like an icon of 20th century aviation, and it was it was just uh, a dream coming true. And coming from the 737, it's a relatively small step going to the 747, and it's just got two more engines, but the systems are more automated, and the handling is pretty much the same. 
uh, but the whole operation was completely different. So instead of just flying up and down from Amsterdam with a handful of passengers, I'm now flying long haul, sometimes flying for 12 hours. Yeah, so where were you going in the 747? Where do you kind of fly nowadays? Um, the company I fly for right now has about uh, six or seven destinations, both the uh, United States, uh, Europe, and uh, in China. But in the past, I uh, was flying for a different company, and we were flying literally worldwide. I think we had about 120 or 130 destinations. Uh, that's excluding all the charter flights that were coming up as well. And basically, with the 747, in the last 12, 13 years, I've been flying literally all over the world. Just every, any runway that could accommodate a 747, uh, we went there with all sorts of freight and cargo, and it was uh, it was it, it was a nice combination, or actually it is a nice combination of the um, operational and and uh, challenging flying I did on the F fifty combined with uh, standard uh, professional flying on the seven thirty seven in, in a perfect mixture. Oh, that's cool. So you've really had some awesome experiences flying. Do you, do you even track how many hours you have now? Yeah, yeah, of course. I, I put every flight uh, in my logbook because we're we're. Uh, it's mandatory to, to keep track of all your flights. Um, I have close to nine and a half thousand hours now, uh, of which about six thousand hours on the seven forty seven. And um, yeah, it's it's uh, it's difficult to say if it's a lot of experience. I think for my age, uh, it's uh, it's considered uh, considerable experience. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Uh, so you've been flying since you were fourteen years old. I understand now that you are also a photographer and you take photos in the aircraft. Is that correct? And that's yeah, that's correct. Um, and the photography is actually a career that started literally from the first day I started flying. It's like a parallel career, and they're they're completely intertwined. So the moment I started flying as a as a student pilot, I was just taken away by the views, and it's also one of the reasons why I wanted to become a pilot because the views outside of the cockpit and just the sense of flight is just so amazing. Still, after so many years of flying, I'm, I, I still love it. So I, I always took a really, really cheap and small camera with me just to document the, the views and the, the landscapes. And it grew into, um, into more like a, a, more, a more professional hobby once I started to fly for these African and Af uh, Afghan operations. Because I realized, especially in Afghanistan and yeah, in a certain way also Africa, that the things that we were experiencing were literally unique. There was no one else that was able to document it. And it was not just the views, especially over Afghanistan, the mountains are beautiful every every time you fly over them, but also the adventures, the, the, the non-standard stuff happening. And I just wanted to tell my parents at home and all, the, all my friends at home what I was doing. So for me, it became very natural, almost like uh, mandatory to take pictures of everything we did because it was so unique. And during that time, especially uh, flying in Afghanistan, my photography really grew to a next level because I wanted to capture the next thing that was a challenge from the cockpit. Since um, 2010, I have some really professional camera equipment and I try to, to capture, uh, let's say, the northern lights, the moonlight from the cockpit. And I had so much fun doing it. Uh, I started to upload my pictures on social media, which was upcoming and booming back in those days. And I was surprised in a positive way to, to see that uh, the audience, the internet, was just loving it. There's so much, so many people who love to see the stuff that we see as pilots, and especially documented in a way that that is inaccessible for for normal passengers. From the cockpit, we have uh, quite quite big windows with a, with an un, almost unlimited view. So for me, it became a very natural thing to always carry my camera with me. And when the workload is is low, but I want to emphasize that it's easy to take one or two pictures. And and it, yeah, it just it just came naturally to me. So now we're, we're talking about after 20 years of flying and almost 20 years of photography, my photography really uh, became like my second career. And f some people 
they say, well, if you take pictures, you don't enjoy the views anymore or you don't enjoy what you're looking at. But for me, it's the other way around. The moment I take pictures and the moment I'm, I'm looking out of the windows with, with a certain composition in mind and with my camera in hand, I start to appreciate it actually even more. And, uh, okay, granted, I'm, I'm taken away by the, by the views to begin with. But many of my colleagues, they're so numbed down from all the views because you see the northern lights again. You see the shooting stars again. It's like, okay, well, how many hours do we have to go? And I take some pictures and some of the colleagues are asking, well, what are you taking pictures of now? It's like the same Milky Way again. Mm -hmm. And I show them on the back of the camera, just live, what I just took a picture of. And this actually opened up um, some of my colleagues to, to realizing how special it is what we see. Mm -hmm. And it's only because they saw it on the backside of my camera that they realized, well, it's actually kind of special. So for me personally, it's like uh, it's like a a mission to capture the, the next best thing from the cockpit, and I, I I love all the positive feedback I get, especially on social media, where people are really uh, yeah enjoying the stuff that we see as pilots. It'd be great if at one point in the future, you know, we could bring the photos up and look at them. But um, you do have a website where your photos are um, posted, at least to some degree. Uh, we'll post that in the description so people can check it out. Um, and you also have a book as well. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, first of all, I appreciate that. It's uh, yeah, my website is is one of the the places where I can, where people can see my portfolio. Um, it's a Dutch name, so best if you put it in the description. Uh, I'm pretty active on social media as well. So if you Google my name, you'll probably find my uh, my social media. And in 2015, I was uh, lucky enough to get in touch with a British uh, publisher. Um, actually, I met the guy in North Korea. That's a long story. But only after I came back in Europe, he basically. Uh, uh, contacted me. He said, "Well, I was re he was really impressed with, especially the stories I had from Afghanistan and uh, and Africa, because he's 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 very uh, enthusiastic about aviation as well." And he asked me, "Well, shall we have a coffee and see if we can come up with a book?" And a couple of months later, my first book was published called uh, Cargo Pilots, and it's basically telling a visual story about my uh, experiences as a pilot. And it's not in a in a in a boring fashion that I'm just showing pictures of every destination. Uh, a really good graphics designer as, as a young guy who's, who's who's designing all my calendars and books nowadays. He came up with a with a really natural way of, of, of telling the story through pictures and words. And that book was published, I think, in 2015. And I remember um, that the publisher told me, he said, well, I expect that there's a market for, let's say, a thousand aviation nerds worldwide. That's about it. So don't expect anything big from it. And now we're already in the fifth print run and the book is just still selling. And... Um, uh, for those people who think you get rich from making a book, you don't. So don't, yeah. don't even uh, bother doing that if you want to get rich. But uh, for me, it was the biggest incentive to take my own photography actually to the next level because I realized if this uh, book for such a small audience is already so popular and already, in, as I said, in the fifth print run right now, uh, there is a there is a world out there that I want to uh, provide with with my pictures and, and and maybe narratives here and there. So it's um, it's it's amazing how the book is still selling, and I'm really hoping to hopefully publish more books in the future. But let's let's wait and see. Awesome, man! Yeah, that was one of my favorite things flying. You know, was just the views that you're exposed to, and of course, um, in fighters we have a little more you know maneuverability to kind of position ourselves or you know, kind of get in the clouds and zip around a little bit. And that was, you know, that was one of the most fun, fun things of flying for me was just being able to enjoy those views and what be part of it up there. Uh, and it, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's great that you're able to capture those and share those with people. Cause a lot of them are, are so unique. Um, 
And yeah, like you said, pilots, sometimes we, we forget to look out the window just as much as anyone else does sometimes. So it can be a great reminder. It's a nice office with a view, but even, even after a while, it just gets, a, it just becomes an office. So you really have to, um, well, you don't have to, but at least I try to, um, force myself into appreciating the beauty and realizing that, uh, it's, it's really something special that we, that we experience every day. And, and sometimes, uh, people ask me, well, isn't, isn't it boring? And I must admit, sometimes you have to get up at two in the morning and with, with a couple of hours of sleep and you're sitting there maybe a bit grumpy. And after two hours, I'm having breakfast over the Alps and the sun is rising. And honestly, you have to, it, it's, it's, it's a reminder of how absolutely amazing that job is and how special it is. So uh, I will never grow tired of it. So you've been flying for pretty much your whole life. Um, as you know, I have an interest in unidentified anomalous phenomenon or UAP. Um, you might be a good person to ask about this. Have you ever seen anything up there that, you know, has given you pause for concern or otherwise is unexplainable? Uh, yeah, yeah. A short answer. Yes. Uh, long answer. Um, we see as, as, as pilots, we see a lot of really interesting stuff. Um, not always immediately identifiable. Uh, ever since my first flights, I've been, uh, I've been looking out of the window. First of all, as we just discussed with my photography, I just love looking at the landscapes both day and night. And it's just, uh, mesmerizing i'm looking at the night sky because i love seeing all the all the stars and uh, meteors and the the northern lights you name it and every once in a while we see something or i see something that's uh that's that's uh that's triggering my uh, my attention and sometimes uh, even some stuff that i haven't been able to explain so far i'm always keeping uh, track of what i'm seeing i'm taking especially if i have my camera at hand i try to take pictures of what i see I tried to take a picture of the instrument panel, uh, including the GPS coordinates, just uh, so I can uh, track it back whenever I'm, I'm back in the hotel or back at home to see uh, what I've what I could have seen, maybe, or if it's if it, there's an explanation like uh, maybe a rocket's re-entry or a rocket launch, etc. You never know. Um, so I'm keeping so track of. Yeah, you're doing some actual homework on this. It sounds like you're actually trying to track it. it do, do you keep those notes? Is that something you've con like continued to work and build on, or? Yeah, basically, I, I always keep all my pictures. If they're sharp or not, I just, um, whenever I get back to the hotel or when I get back home, I uh, empty my memory cards from the camera. I just put everything in a separate folder so I never throw anything away mm -hmm. just in case I uh, I see something uh, like the Holy Grail. Some, and I didn't even spot it immediately in the first uh, glance that at least I have the pictures still in my database. But uh, now, all joking aside, I just keep all the notes and... Um, some of the things are really interesting to dive into. One of the best examples um, uh, is a sighting that I had in 2014, August 2014. We were flying with a 747 from uh, Hong Kong to Anchorage. It was about a nine, 10 hour flight over the Pacific and halfway the flight, we were just with two pilots. Uh, basically, we already dimmed all the cockpit lights and we're just looking out at the night sky just to spot any meteors or, or any, any uh, shooting stars. And all of a sudden, we saw um, a red blob of lights just approaching us from the horizon. It was basically on the surface level of the ocean, and it seemed to be stationary. The closer we got, the more we realized there was something burning on the ocean uh, surface. And uh, the, the lights were stable, both in intensity and, and relative position. And it, they appeared to be actually very large. So at that moment, I started to take a lot of pictures in, in a row, just consecutively, just to document what we were seeing. And to give you um, a little bit of a background story, before the flight, we always do like 
probably uh, you're aware of it, but we as pilots, we always do a thorough flight preparation. So we look at the status of the airplane. We look at the, at the route we're flying. We're looking at the weather and routes, uh, destinations. We're looking at no temps, which means uh, a list of, of airspaces closed, etc., etc. And in this flight, uh, there was a lot of um, volcanic activity going on, both in Indonesia to the south of us, Kamchatka, which is a Russian peninsula on the Pacific, Japan, but also the Aleutian Islands of Alaska, and you name it. The whole, uh, I think it's called the Pacific Rim, or the Ring of Fire, was uh, was rumbling and uh, spewing a lot of uh, ash clouds, etc. And we were basically looking at all the ash clouds and potential uh, eruptions along our route. The moment we saw those red lights, even though it was hundreds of miles, maybe thousands of miles from the nearest coastline, the first thing that came to mind was, well, we're looking at something that was not planned and that was not expected. And it looks awfully like a, a volcano basically exploding below us. So our first concern uh, was the flight safety, was our flight safety or the safety of our airplane. And um, the biggest danger with, uh, with volcanic eruptions is potentially flying into an ash cloud. So we were keeping track of everything we were seeing. Fortunately, we were able to stay visual. We could still see the stars. Uh, we just continue flying on the track we were flying and really afraid that if we start to deviate left or right, actually we were, because the track brought us exactly over the red lights, but if we would have deviated left or right, we might actually inadvertently end up in the ash cloud. Mm -hmm. So as long as we could stay visual, uh, we just maintained our track. And that brought us exactly over the red lights and I was able to take some pretty detailed pictures. And we were actually making jokes together, uh, saying, well, you know, if we see one of these volcanoes erupting below us, that means we might be a witness to a, a whole chain of, of islands being uh, <laughs> being created as we speak. So at least I claimed one of those islands as uh, as my own. Um, but this was uh, this this was really really disconcerting because we had no clue what we were seeing. I put it online um, back then. It was only on Facebook, I think, and basically asking people, "Well, what do you think we saw here, etc." And it really took off. It was taken up by some of the Dutch media and later on international media as well, with headlines like uh, "Pilot is is looking at UFO base underwater and aliens." And this was absolutely the stuff that I was not into, and I was not even remotely thinking about when we saw those lights. And um, long story short, it took me a couple of years, but now I found out uh, uh, after uh, researching the internet and researching some, uh, some other sources that what we saw was actually, um, let's say, maybe even illegal fishing fleet from the Chinese, uh, uh, or the Chinese fishing fleet fishing for sorry or mackerel in the North Pacific. And the moment we saw it was in 2014. It must have been one of the first times that they used these huge red lights to basically subdue the, the fish. And one of the reasons um, uh, we were really uh, hesitant to call it a fishing fleet is because of the size of the individual lights and also the fact that red light doesn't penetrate seawater. So for me, this was a really uh, illogical choice. And I, we were thinking about maybe some military activity or, as I said, volcanic activity. And it took me many years to find out, uh, even with satellite imagery that was released a couple of years ago, uh, to basically establish uh, once and for all that it was just really something mundane, uh, a simple fishing fleet. But it was interesting to see that a lot of media were taking it up as evidence that a uh, Dutch pilot was seeing something uh, something interesting. That's so amazing that they were they were legally fishing with lights, you know, in that manner, and you're able to spot that on the ocean. That's incredible. And and actually, I've even seen some satellite imagery where you can actually see the red lights from space as well. And uh, I must say, I'm not 100% sure it's illegal, but apparently these sizes of fishing fleet they use are massive. And to give you an example, uh, and I took some pictures as a comparison as well, the, um, the 
I think two days later, we were flying uh, this, at exactly the same altitude from Anchorage to, I think it was Chicago, and we were flying over the city of Winnipeg, which is around, let's say, 20 or 25 kilometers wide. So that must be, let's say, uh, 10 to 15 miles wide. And the city of Winnipeg, especially from that altitude, was even smaller compared to the to the group of lights that we saw from the sky. Mm. And in comparison, it looked actually like every individual light was the size of a football stadium. And that really triggered my 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 thinking, wondering what, what we saw there. So this is just an example of, of how I keep track of all the details of, of what I've seen, uh, just to find out what it was and if there's any safety issue uh, for us as, as, as pilots. Awesome. That's great. They actually ran it down instead of just... Um... Well, I mean, what what, what else is, is your other option, right? Is there any type of reporting mechanism for uh, unidentified objects um, where you where you fly or within your company or anything of that nature? Well, in this case, with the with the red lights, uh, we immediately made a pirate pilot report over the HF frequency to notify air traffic control that we were potentially seeing uh, uh, the, the the birth of, a, of an ash cloud because this is really safety related and um, especially in those really remote areas of the planets. Of the planet, there are not too many pilots who actually witness or see things. So it happened a couple of times that I uh, that I saw a, a volcanic eruption in Alaska. We called it through to the air traffic controller, and they make a note of it. And sometimes they can even notify the uh, uh, the local uh, park ranger or whatever it is. In this case, we made a note of it. I have no clue what happened with it. Probably nothing too much because there was no no threat in the end. Um, but yeah, you you mentioned uh, UAP and other uh, things that might pose a threat. Uh, we might go into it later, but I've seen a couple of, let's say, phenomena or lights in the sky that I cannot, still cannot identify. Um, and it's very difficult to report those because uh, every airline uh, has a really solid uh, safety management system. That means uh, that if we see something that could potentially be a threat to our airplane, let's say if there's a, uh, an issue with air traffic control, if we get too close to another airplane we can file a report and this is taken up through the chain of, of, of safety inspectors etc so every airline in the world has this really solid system but the problem is if i see a light let's say it's a relatively simple light that i cannot explain um, if i write a report nobody can do anything with that unless it becomes a, a clear threat some of the things i've seen from the sky that i still cannot identify they were very far away so they never really posed a threat to my airplane or to the safety of the flight and um, there is not really a system in place right now in Europe or even in the States, I think, uh, that can deal with those kind of reports. Because, for example, if I write a report to my chief pilot saying, well, I saw a bright light with, uh, moving erratically, well, yeah, he's looking at the report saying, oh, well, happy for you, but <laughs> there's nothing I can do with that. We cannot uh, change the, uh, the procedures or we cannot change the, the um uh, the, the workflow in the company to, to mitigate that. So right now, there is not really a system in place, uh, except if there's a really clear uh, potential danger for the airplane. What tools would you do you have as a pilot inside of your airplane to determine uh, potential threats outside of your visual range? Um, the modern airplanes, especially planes like the 737, 747, uh, we have a TCAS system. Like I think even you guys, uh, the F-18 had a TCAS system as well or something equivalent. Um, it's using transponder signals 
to communicate with other airplanes and every airplane is receiving all the signals from other airplanes around it. <laughs> the, the computers constantly um, verify each other's system, um, uh, signals and the moment we get too close to another airplane, the systems start to communicate and, and um, issue an either a, a traffic warning <laughs> or advisory or even resolutionary uh, re resolution advice. Uh, meaning that they that they can communicate and tell us pilots to either climb or descend so we can avoid each other. Uh, this is a really good system, but uh, there's one downside. It only works if the other airplane has the same transponder system, a TICA system installed. And uh, some of the lights that I've seen, um, the, they were not showing up on TCAS, they were not showing up on, on any other system, and probably because it's, it's either uh, not carrying a transponder or it's not even uh, an airplane in the, in the traditional mm -hmm. sense. Uh, apart from that, we have a, a weather radar on board, but as it says already, the weather radar is specialized in picking up weather, especially uh, precipitation, so we can see uh, thunderstorms and, 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 and uh, heavy rain showers, etc. In some cases, it can even pick up turbulence, but it cannot pick up solid objects like you guys uh, with the military jets can. So sometimes the, the weather radar is, uh, is the, the signals are bouncing off other airplanes if they're really close. So you can actually uh, see the, the weather uh, radar return coinciding with the TCAS signal. So that means that the, it's, not, it's, it's not only indicating the TCAS system is working from the other airplane, it's actually reflecting the weather radar signals as well. Mm -hmm. But it's pretty rare that you see that. And it's like, it's kind of useless because the airplane is already so close by. So the weather radar is picking up weather, not other airplanes or phenomena. Uh, the TCAS system we have is only picking up all the TCAS signals. And for the rest, we just have big windows uh, and our, uh, our eyeballs to uh, to look at all the traffic. And that's that's the only stuff that we have on board to, to identify anything else that's outside of the cockpit. Have you ever seen on anything on any of those sensors that you would perhaps classify as a UAP uh, or have all your sightings been with your eyes. Yeah, I've never picked up anything on the instruments that could indicate something anomalous or, or strange. Mm -hmm. um, the stuff that I have seen with my with my eyes is, I was probably beyond uh, the range of TCAS anyway. Um, and I think the stuff that I've seen uh, might not even qualify, let's say, as, a, as an airplane in the traditional sense. So I, I, I doubt if, if the weather radar or, or the other systems could actually pick it up in the first place. So let's talk about what the, what did those lights do? What did they look like? Where did they come from? Um, well, there let's say, I think there are four four times I've seen something from the cockpit that I couldn't identify because I think it's, uh, it's, it's important to stress that most of the stuff that we see from the cockpit can ev eventually be identified. Um, but the first time I saw something that's still uh, a genuine unknown to me was in 2005 when I just started flying the, uh, the F-50, the turboprop. So I was pretty new to aviation and a really inexperienced first officer. And we were flying over Germany in the evening or, or at night in between two cloud layers. And all of a sudden we were just chatting with my captain. Maybe he was even an instructor. It was, was pretty new. And from, I'm looking in his direction and I see uh, a white light. The size is, is, is impossible to determine because it was just a very, very bright light falling or moving vertically um, through the, both of the cloud layers vertically down. And my captain saw it as well and we were both just intrigued. And the object or light source, whatever it was, it was falling vertically very fast and it was illuminating the clouds below as it, as it fell through and it disappeared. And I remember that my instructor, my captain was saying, wow, I've never seen anything like that. 
And I realized, well, then in that case, it must be something special because I was so so inexperienced as a pilot. Um, I have no clue what it was, and this was really interesting. Just uh, it's as as I said, it's very difficult to to uh, to judge the size of, of of a light source. It was just pure white, and it was falling vertically, um, but it was falling so fast or moving so fast that it seemed to be propelled instead of um, the terminal velocity because you would expect if you if you if you have a rock or any 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 solid object it falls with a certain speed and it maintains the terminal velocity once it reaches that speed but this was just moving so fast um, much faster than the terminal much much faster yeah and it only lasted maybe for one and a half or two seconds and it, it was gone distance unknown to to me it was difficult to to judge but i guess it was maybe 10 kilometers uh, let's say five miles seven miles um to the to the left of our track, and I've never seen anything. Well, actually, I've, I, there's another sighting that that's pretty similar to that, but I've never seen anything like that over Germany. I've never seen anything that uh, that could explain what we what what we saw there. Yeah, you said that was over Germany. Can you be any more specific? Or um, I'm pretty sure it was pretty close to the city of Nuremberg, and um, yeah, you can look it up on uh, uh, on Google Maps. Uh, but I don't think there's any anything out there that could explain it. Uh, because the funny thing is. As commercial pilots, uh, most of the commercial pilots uh, don't have a military background. So if we see something that we cannot identify, the default answer is, yeah, it must be something military, uh, like a, a missile launch or something, uh, a shooting exercise. But this was a light that was falling vertically down. It was not even close to to um, a military base or, or anything else. So and there was no way that I could rationally explain what it, what it was. Do you know how high... The first cloud deck was that it went through. Can you call that? No, I think we were flying around twenty thousand feet, and the cloud deck above us was was a solid cloud deck. Must have been, let's say, twenty five thousand feet, and below us, well, let's say, ten thousand feet. Okay, so it roughly, was a roughly pretty big, you know, window of clear air that you saw this. It was just moving very fast. That's why you only saw it for a couple of seconds. Yeah, yeah, very fast. Oh, and, and as uh, as I said, you know, it's, uh, it's it's very difficult to judge size and and distance. But I I think it must have been like a, a relatively small, but very very bright light that was falling at roughly let's say seven miles or ten kilometers from our position. What did you do? I mean, you you confirmed it with your captain. It sounds like. Um, what else? Nothing. <laughs> I just continue with the flight. Just, I, as I said, I was uh, completely inexperienced, uh, mm -hmm. and if I if I see my captain or instructor reacting like that and, and just shrugging his shoulders and then going on. Oh yeah, I didn't really take it that serious. Mm -hmm. um, there's another incident. Uh, it's not even an incident. Before we get into that, let me. I'm just you know, it's interesting to me that it was just kind of brushed off by the instructor because that's like an incredible teaching moment, essentially, more or less for an instructor pilot to teach someone, especially a new pilot. Uh, my first inclination would be to to reach out to ATC or some type of control to see if there was a missile launch or something like that, just so they're aware that something potentially dangerous was in the area in in that particular case you know there was a potential for something physical to be there in close proximity whereas a light you saw there was a i would say a less probability of danger just because the the relative distance and the uncertainty with what it actually was but you know there's something there you can see it and something could hit it but you guys were not inclined to speak about it yeah do you why why was that uh, that's a very interesting question, and I've I ran into that uh, many times. I think it completely depends on the um, on the interests and the personality of the pilot involved. I noticed with some other incidents, if you feel like we can talk about that later, uh, that my colleagues were completely disinterested. Actually, it's it's almost like an attitude they don't even want to know. 
and um, that's that's preventing some of the pilots from investigating what they see. Um, actually, just recently, uh, one of my colleagues actually came forward to me with their with his own sightings, and he said literally, "I don't want to know," and I prefer I never saw it because it's so uh, strange. And I think this plays a major role in how some people or how some pilots react to something that that they cannot explain. Um, personally, uh, I always contact nowadays uh, air traffic control if I see something. Most of the time, it 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 happens to be something very mundane. But um, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Sometimes we we see some lights or some objects that could potentially form a risk for the for the flight safety aspect of the uh, of the flight. And it doesn't necessarily need to be a anomalous object. It could it could be something mundane, but you know it's pulling attention. It's it's causing an issue. Um, and this one, there was no indica. Oh, you didn't have any systems on the on the, on this aircraft that would have could have provided indications on this. No, no, nothing. Yeah. No. Um, I'm sorry for cutting off your story a minute. I'd love to if you could please continue with it. Yeah, well, no, no worries. Uh, there's so much ground to cover here. Uh, but it really looked like something that I saw a couple of years later when flying the 737. Um, we were flying. I think it must have been from 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 somewhere southern Europe. Uh, back to Amsterdam, it was a, a summer day, it was completely clear skies, and we were flying parallel to the coastline of Greece and Albania over the Aegean Sea. You can probably look it up on, on Google Earth, but it was just uh, uh, clear skies, perfect visibility, and I was chatting with my with my uh, captain, and we were flying, let's say, roughly 36,000 feet, some, something around that uh, that altitude. And it's almost the same scenario. I'm looking in, in the direction of my captain and all of a sudden, both of us, we see a really, really bright light falling vertically into the uh, Adri uh, um, Aegean Sea. And it, the, we saw it emerging basically from the top where the, uh, the window frame begins uh, falling vertically into the sea. It was, it's, it's very difficult to, to judge uh, sizes or distances. Uh, especially because this time it was during day and the other uh, falling light was during the night. Um, but the, 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 the vertical speed was roughly the same. It was a little bit further away. I think it was around 30 to 40 kilometers. So let's say 20, 20, 15 to 20 miles uh, from our flight path. And uh, it just fell vertically, moved vertically down and it's, uh, it disappeared into the, uh, into the sea. It was very close to the... Um, FIR boundary, the, the airspace boundary between uh, Greece and Albania. And I decided to ask the Greek controller if there was any military exercise, because the first go-to solution that we think of is it must be something military, which was still behaving oddly, but it, at least I wanted to know if there was some sort of shooting exercise going on. And I contacted the Greek air traffic controller and he was getting almost annoyed. And of course there's nothing going on. Okay, now contact the Albanian controller. Goodbye. And it was like the this is something that I notice more often that air traffic control they get really um, uh, annoyed with these kind of requests like no of course there's nothing going on just you probably saw nothing just continue he didn't say this literally but this was a bit my my uh, my impression and that really made me wonder what it was because first of all a military exercise just on the boundary between two countries is is uh, uh, strange and the way this light was moving was also very strange. It just disappeared into the ocean below. You would expect with a shooting exercise that they shoot something upwards. Uh, and, and in the end, let's say if they shoot a missile or a rocket up, um, once the fuel is expired, it just comes down without any light source. So I have no clue what it was, but it was very clear that uh, air traffic control was just not interested. 
yeah, what else can you do except for asking air traffic control if there's anything going on? And if not, then yeah, another one for the books. Interesting. It's, it's, it's remarkable that it was so familiar to other one. It was accelerating or at least going faster than terminal velocity in yeah. this case as well. Yeah, it, it was not accelerating. It was just constant speed. Uh, it was about the same speed as, uh, as the first time I saw it from the F-50. The intensity, it was very bright again, but then it's difficult to compare because the one, uh, the first one was at night, the other one was mm -hmm. during day. And uh, yeah, it just moved very fast and it, it, it didn't make any sense. And it was white, pure white like the other one? Yeah, yeah, pure white. Couldn't be a meteor, I assume? Well, I've seen... That's like the first thing I think. So, have you thought about that angle? I assume. Yeah, and it's um, it's 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 uh, yeah, it, it's a logical explanation. The problem is, I've seen I've seen thousands of meteors, and they always enter the atmosphere under a certain angle, and they burn up. And uh, I've seen one or two meteors that probably didn't completely burn up. They leave a beautiful trail, uh, like a, fire, uh, a fiery trail, um, but there's a lot of smoke, and there's a lot there's a, often there. Yeah, very orangey or yellow, mm -hmm. and they just burn up under a certain angle, and they continue into the atmosphere under a certain angle. Uh, I think there's a lot of Russian dash cam footage from some of these meteors burning up uh, in the atmosphere, and this was nothing like it. Not nothing like it, and it was just a steady single light, both cases that was falling vertically down. There was no burning sensation. It was not flickering. It was not pulsating. It was not. It was. It was just like a steady almost like an artificial, really bright light moving vertically down. And I, I don't know about any meteors that could do that. Then again, I'm, I'm open to any explanation. Um, if if I if you really push me for a logical explanation, I would say uh, maybe a ball lightning, something that's uh, like an uh, anomalous weather phenomena that we, that we don't know anything about that could explain it. But then again, uh, that doesn't make sense for me either. So whatever it is, it's, it's a genuine unknown for me. And uh, yeah. That's it. And your captain wasn't necessarily interested in exploring, exploring this. No, I, I remember uh, I was asking the captain uh, if she knew what was going on. And she she just shrugged her shoulders, and she was okay with me asking uh, the air traffic controller what it was. And after he brushed us off, it was like, yeah, okay, let's continue. Let's get another coffee. <laughs> so yeah, that's 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 a, that's a, the default answer that most of the most of the pilots uh, give. And I think. Uh, you know, there's only so much we can do from the cockpit, and I think it's also very good to keep in mind that we as pilots, we're not looking for UAP, we're not looking for something uh, unexplained, we're not looking for mysteries. We're just there, flying the airplane from A to B, and flight safety is uh, is the utmost importance. And if we see something that we cannot readily explain, but it's no concern for flight safety, yeah, what can we do? Just continue. And personally, I, I want to know what I'm seeing, especially as I'm looking outside of my windows constantly. And uh, I want to I want to learn if, if there's some new weather phenomena, if there's something else that I, uh, that I cannot explain, I want to know more about it. So I'm looking at things through my window uh, from a slightly different perspective maybe than some other pilots, mm -hmm. but it, that's, that's, that's my take on it. Do you think perhaps some, some of these pilots that don't take that much of an interest in it, do so because it's something they've seen in the past and it's not that unique or is, do you just think they just have a mental block and engaging it in some sense? I think um, there are many, many different approaches to the subject uh, and I know a certain percentage of pilots they have a certain block. They, they literally do not want to know that they even say it to me. Some other pilots, they, they're completely uh, uninterested in, 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 in uh, observing anything they cannot explain or, or even thinking about it. 
Uh, other pilots, they never look outside of the window. They just rather read their newspaper or put on the, the storm light, which is like a floodlight in the cockpit, blinding out uh, anything that might be visible at night. Um, and other pilots uh, like me, they do look out and they, they do wonder what's, what's going on there. I don't think there's a go-to answer. I think it's uh, it's very individual for every pilot how they how they approach these uh, these things. And um, I think one of the other uh, reasons why some people are have a certain blockage because there is still uh, a huge stigma involved in 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 acknowledging that you might see something that not, might not be readily explainable. And um, I noticed this actually. I came forward with my first sightings and in, uh, an interview with uh, Vinnie Adams from uh, a disclosure team. I think it was in November. Uh, it was uh, uh, the first time I actually sp spoke publicly about some of the stuff I couldn't see. Um, and uh, since then, I've been flying a lot of flights, and I, I never really touched these uh, topics with my colleagues. And at one point, I was flying already for two or three days with the same colleague. And only after two or three days, he, he, he started uh, talking about the subject himself uh, once he felt it was safe. And actually, he told me some of the things that he's seen during his uh 10 or 15 years of flying and he was very hesitant he was like almost almost uh afraid to to touch this subject um uh, but i realized that we had a nice open conversation about it but i realized for many pilots there's still a huge um uh um how do you say this like it was very difficult to talk about the subject and uh, with the fear of ridicule and i think this is playing a major part for many pilots as well why do you think that is that they, there's that that fear is there you know, have you seen like yourself any type of backlash to communicate on that topic, or is it just kind of the social pressure that you have from the immediate reaction? Um, or is it more, you know, are, are are there actual, you know, career implications or things of that nature people are concerned about? It's a that's a very interesting uh, question, and there are many takes on this uh, on this topic. I think first of all, um, it's important to say that uh, I was absolutely not interested in the whole UAP or UFO topic to begin with. I don't even like the word UFO because of the, the stigma attached to it. Um, I never, I never took this, the whole subject serious, honestly, because since uh, since I was young until uh, basically I saw your interview and that of Commander David Traver with uh, Joe Rogan and Lex Fridman, um, the whole UFO topic was mostly dominated by. Uh, I yeah, crackheads put it uh, mildly, and I just couldn't take the subject seriously. Even though I've seen a lot of things that I couldn't explain, it's only after uh, after I basically saw your interview and, and that of Commander David Traver, I realized that um, military pilots are seeing things that they cannot explain, and that was always my default answer. Like if I couldn't explain it, it must have been something military. And then I saw you coming forward with your experiences, and I realized that. Um, some of the things are really uh, a genuine unknown still. So I slowly started opening up um, towards myself even about the topic because I realized that some of the stuff I've seen might be uh, uh, might be something more than just a, a shooting star or, or something something military, etc. So for me, it, it has been a well. Let's say I saw your interview for the first time. 2020 and only slowly in the end of 2020 I started to 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 read up a bit more on the topic and um yeah it's been a well yeah it's yeah, it's, it's been let's say one year one and a half years that I've, I've started to take this the subject serious myself and many of my colleagues have never even looked into it they don't even know about the the DOD coming forward I say sorry the New York Times coming forward with the article in 2017 which was a major breakthrough 
So many pilots are simply not aware of, of, of how this topic is being approached nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting uh, after I came forward with these sightings of the red lights in 2014. As I said, my first go-to explanation was, was we were looking at a live volcanic eruption with my islands being grown there as we speak. <laughs> and um, I remember we came, uh, we, we arrived in Anchorage and I put it online. And we went out for dinner and beer, and all of a sudden I get a text message from my brother saying, oh, you're on the news. And apparently a news channel picked up my uh, my post on Facebook, which has gone completely viral. And it uh, it had the takeoff, uh, uh, let's say it had the title of, of, of Pilot Spots uh, UFOs uh, Over the Pacific. And the first thought that came through my mind was, oh, now I'm going to be the laughingstock of the company. You know, even though I'm a, I'm a professional pilot and I'm, uh, all, all my colleagues know me as a, as a down-to-earth professional pilot, but I was really afraid of uh, being laughed at uh, from that moment on. And that proved to be completely the opposite. And uh, many of my colleagues, they took it actually very serious. And it was a, an eye-opener for me to see that many of my uh, both ex-military and, and purely commercial pilots were so open to the topic and they really wanted to explore together with me what we've seen. And that was really supportive and there was not one single negative comment from my own colleagues uh, maybe some some people, anonymous people on the internet that were uh, mocking me. Honestly, I don't give a shit. But my own colleagues, um, they took it very serious. And even more interestingly, um, it was a bit, let's say these red lights. They were a hot topic in the news for uh, for about a year, especially in the aviation community. And many of my colleagues who never even spoke about any sort of uh, subject like that at all, they came forward to me in private settings, like having dinner at the bar or, or flying over the Pacific with their own sightings, and some of them were really, really uh, mind-blowing. And it was only after they realized I was open to to um, basically finding out the truth, finding out what, what we saw, that they felt okay enough uh, with me to talk about the subject. And that was really interesting. That was also a huge compliment because it means that uh, many colleagues, they never even spoke about whatever they saw until they felt safe with, with me because I, I approached the topic so down-to-earth and uh, objectively. How widespread do you think that that feeling is that people are interested in engaging in it if they're, it was safe to do so. Um, in my personal experience, and as I said, I've, I've been flying now for 20 years and, and I've seen many hundreds of colleagues. Um, some of my colleagues, many of my colleagues have seen extraordinary things from the sky and, and maybe even the more have not, never seen anything else. Mm-hmm. But um, let's say even if there's 10% of the pilots, commercial pilots, that have seen some really interesting things it would be uh, very interesting to see that group of pilots opening up about their experiences. And uh, I think if we get rid of the stigma, if we have to, if, if we get rid of the uh, the fear of ridicule, and if we just approach the whole topic of UAP very um, objectively and, and try to find an answer, and, and especially with safe, flight safety in mind, uh, it should be just uh, another topic to we, that we have to talk about. Um, sometimes I compare it with the, uh, with the, uh, huge flow of incidents with uh, green lasers being pointed at airplanes. This was uh, especially coming up in 2006, seven, I think. And all of a sudden, uh, many idiots started pointing uh, uh, green laser pointers towards the airplane. And for a long time, many pilots said just ignored it, saying, well, you know, if we don't mention it over the radio, these guys will get bored. But a couple of pilots, including myself, actually went to the police and I, I filed a report, even though, I mean, the chance that these guys are being caught is, is very small, but at least at uh, at least I filed a report, and if they finally catch one of these guys, they have at least a history of, of stuff going on. And I think uh, I think it was the FAA 
that finally issued a, a, a it's like a, a course or an introduction course on what to do if you see a green laser. And nowadays, within uh, well, let's say within four years, it was implemented by many airlines over the world that all the pilots get a, a, a training. So what to do, how to recognize a green laser, what to do if you see it, how to take care of your of your eyes if you have any any uh, residual uh, laser images, uh, even if you if your eyes get damaged by lasers, etc. And it shows that this topic of these laser pointers was suddenly being taken serious. And um, I think this is the same approach that we need to to uh, to implement with reporting UAP. And especially since there might be, I'm not saying there is, but it might be an aviation safety issue. Let's say if we if we if we would discover or find out a new weather phenomena that could or could not have an influence on our airplane. I mean, this is all stuff that we uh, that we have to be aware of as aviators. So in the end, um, if we get rid of the stigma, if we if we manage to 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 talk about it openly and if pilots just dare to report whatever they saw, even 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 if it's not flight safety related, I think uh, it will be a major leap forward. So so far we've talked about the red light that you know was initially an unidentified, potentially new volcanic activity. Um, you ended up doing some homework on that, and after a period of time, we're able to determine it was very likely fishing boats of some nature. Um, we've just described a couple um, situations you've been in. We've been had more unidentified uh, events, lights essentially that have been coming down faster than what we'd expect gravity to be pulling it down at, uh, from high altitudes all the way down to the ocean. In at least one case, um, do you have any others that are you know in your book anomalous still? Uh, yeah, there are two more uh, events that are still anomalous uh, uh, that I've uh, seen or witnessed. Um, one of them, actually, both of them are completely different than the other two cases of falling lights, also very different from each other. Uh, there was back in 2005 as well, if I'm not mistaken, uh, we were flying with the F-50 uh, for an airline called Olympic Airlines, um, chartered out of Athens. We were flying to all these islands. It was really cool flying work. And we were flying uh, four, five, or six flights a day. And at one point, it was already evening, or maybe even uh, uh, late evening. And we just landed on a small island. I'm pretty sure it must have been Mykonos or one of those islands. Anyway, there are thousands of them, so it's all pretty much in the same area. And it was a very small runway. And in the end, we had to make a 180 turn, uh, 180 degrees, and backtrack the runway to go back to the, uh, to the uh, platform. And the moment we landed, we made a 180 turn, and the cockpit was facing towards the north while we were turning. And it was a clear sky. You could see all the stars, and it was a very, very clear night, no clouds. And we witnessed something in the sky that I can only describe as a, a very bright light. It was um, maybe even a, it, it was comparable to a very bright planet, as you sometimes see them, Mars. Right, what? A planet like uh, Mars or Venus. And it was a very bright spot of light. It appeared, it disappeared, it reappeared again, disappeared. It happened four or five times. And it reappeared again, just a bit further, let's say the width of a, of a full moon, maybe two or three full moons. And it shot off at incredible speed. There was not even acceleration. So the light appeared, disappeared for four times, just a small distance apart. And it reappeared and it shot off like nothing I've ever seen before or since. And it's very difficult to judge the altitude or distance but I could at least judge it was very far away. As pilots were pretty used, as you're probably used to as well, to judge distances and then speeds of objects. Um, anything relatively close by, you can see it with the parallax of the of the window frame. But whatever this was, it must have been 
let's say roughly at least 20,000 feet, maybe even low Earth orbit, um, but let's say it's just very high. And hypothetically, if it was at 30,000 feet, which I'm not sure, but I, I, it is just a guesstimate, if it was at 30,000 feet, uh, the speed which, uh, which it shot off must have been around Mach 30 or 40. It was just incredible. Wow. And um, um, as again, this is just an, an estimate if it was at 30,000 feet, but whatever it was, it was very high and it was just, it was gone. And the sound is just something I made <laughs> because we, we didn't hear anything, but it was just instantly gone. Uh, my captain, he saw it as well, and he remarked, wow, this is really strange. Which uh, direction did it take off into? Uh, due, uh, due east. And so, it, was, it appeared level? Uh, it was just, uh, uh, well, level, yeah, you mean like we It wasn't level? like climbing or like shooting up or down in a sense. It was just proceeding, you know, horizontally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's very difficult to judge uh, the, the pitch or attitude, but um, I... I, I estimate that it was just flying, let's say, level or moving, moving level, and it shot off just in one direction uh, without any the turn. Same direction. Yeah. Same direction, yeah. And the interesting thing is uh, we did the flight preparation, of course, as we always do. And in the NOTAMs, it was clearly stated that that night a huge part of the Mediterranean airspace was closed because uh, the uh, U.S. carrier group with the USS Theodore Roosevelt was passing by towards the, the Persian Gulf. So it must have been 2005. And um, we have no clue where the, the carrier group exactly was because it's, it's uh, classified normally, but it was the same night that the, uh, the, the, the ships were passing by. And our first reaction was again, well, it must be something military. It's probably connected to, to the carrier group. And I've never seen anything since or anything like it. And uh, especially the stuttering motion, which was really strange. And then the instant speed, I'm not even talking about acceleration, just instant speed are something I cannot explain with any any uh, logic or 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 common sense, and I'm still I'm still wondering what it was. Um, I recently uh, read some of the incident reports that have been reported by uh, ex-security military personnel working at uh, nuclear facilities, and funny enough, exactly the same event has been described by a couple of people who who came forward with their experiences in the 70s and I think 80s. And you know, like with the flashing lights and the zipping off, is that how it's similar? Yeah, exactly. Exactly similar. Four times appearing and reappearing in a stuttering motion and then shooting off at incredible speed without acceleration. And uh, it was a, like a revelation when I saw this in these published reports that I realized that it was not my imagination. I didn't, I didn't uh, uh, imagine it afterwards. It was something that has been reported more often. Very rarely, but it has been reported more often. And I'm still... Um, looking for an explanation because uh, there's nothing that that resembles anything like it that I can come up with. Uh, no weather phenomena. If it's like a lightning strike, I've seen millions of lightning strikes. I've seen uh, really strange lightning or light uh, phenomena in thunderstorms, which are completely explainable and uh, rather mundane. But this was something completely off. It's I've never seen anything like it. I understand you can't explain it, but I mean, what do you make of that? I mean, how do you fit that into your your you're thinking here, you know, the, the box is somewhat small that we could put around something like that. There's not a lot of, you know, things that I can think of just as it sounds like you can't to better describe or to, you know, put that in the context with something related to our own technology. Um, where does that leave you on this one? Well, for a long time, uh, almost, uh, 15 years, I didn't even think about it at all. 
it's always been in the back of my mind, always hoping that I see something similar again uh, that I can use to maybe deduct some some logic behind it. I was hoping that I could actually capture it on camera one of these uh, days and 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 try to link it with maybe uh, rocket debris burning up or something happening in the in the sky. But I haven't seen anything since. And um, to be honest, I never really thought about it. Just in the back of my mind, uh, but I never gave it any more attention. Until, let's say, end of 2020, I started to realize that, that some of these things um, might be genuine and known, not just for me, but for the aviation aspect in general, or maybe for, for science in general. So this was really something that, uh, that only came back to the surface after, um, yeah, after almost 15 years of, of, of not even thinking about it. I find that to be the case with, with this a lot of times where people have an experience and then they just put it aside for a period of time. And then at some point, for whatever reason, it comes back up in their life and they kind of re-engage the topic and kind of do what you just did, process it, you know, and communicate about communicate about it and, and speak to it. Uh, but before that, you know, people will pretend like it doesn't happen in some sense. And it sounds like you've spoken to some colleagues that, you know, that treat it that way. What do you think brings people around, get to that point where they can look at this topic? What What do you... Maybe not so stopping them, but how do you move them across that barrier? Um, I think, uh, well, the barrier, uh, for some people, there's a huge barrier because they, they might be afraid of something unknown. Another point is just uh, bringing it um, to the level that we can just talk about it without fear or ridicule. And as I said before, you know, I've been flying with a lot of colleagues that have come forward to, to me with really extraordinary experiences. Uh, that only dare to come forward after they realized I wouldn't I wouldn't laugh in their face. And I think the only way on a on a, on a global scale that we can make the topic um, less fringe and and uh, um, more approachable is just by talking about it. And um, you just asked me before about uh, uh, official ridicule, let's say from an airline or from from uh, maybe the industry. Um, I'm, I, only, I have a European license. I'm flying for EASA airline, European airline. Uh, so the system is a bit different compared to the US airlines and the FAA regulating everything here in the States. I think in Europe, there is no such thing as uh, being afraid of, of, of losing your license just like that. I'm not afraid of, um, of, of, of answering for whatever I've seen. And um, as long as I am very open and very objective about what I've seen, I don't see any reason to, to be afraid of the stigma. In the end, um, I only have one goal in mind, and that's the safety of my flights and flight safety in general. And since aviation is literally all about safety, I think this is one of the topics that we we uh, we should be able to discuss. And as I said before, even if we found out that it's just a strange kind of bird, or uh, maybe even even a glowing insect that has a strange characteristic, or maybe maybe some kind of a new weather phenomena. All for the better. The more we we understand whatever is going on, the more we can implement it in 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 in, in flight and flight safety. So, or in aviation in general. Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, as the captain of the aircraft, you sign for the safety of it, and regardless of the FAA help that you may have, or uh, or lack of help, or the tools that you have access to, or your your co-pilot, their skill set. Um, you know, you have to make decisions to ensure the safety of that flight, regardless of what information you may or may not be receiving, because ultimately you're, you're responsible for the safety of it. Exactly. Yeah. And to have something that, you know, could be a potential safety issue, but uh, is not is not something that people are 
able to openly talk about, you know, that's kind of a, a, a loss of that contract that they, the captain of that aircraft has, if they're not able to look at that one issue as, as a potential safety hazard, just like they would anything else. Definitely. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And the more we, we manage to discuss those kind of topics, uh, the, the more it improves flight safety in the end. And as I said, you know, even if we found out that it's just something completely irrelevant, I mean, that it's just a light reflection or, or something, something very mundane, all for the better, because then we know that if we see those kind of things, we can ignore them. Then again, maybe it's something else. And I think the only way to find out is just be open about it, gather data, uh, and 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 um, open up about the topic. So what's the last one? You have one more, right? That's uh, that's right. Uh, well, the last one, it's already uh, 13 years ago. It was in January 2010. I was flying with a 737 from Amsterdam to Malaga, which is in the southern part of Spain. Um, it was, um, well, let's say about six or seven in the evening. So the sun had already set be below the horizon. There was still this orange yellow glow in the sky and we were flying very high. We were flying at 41,000 feet. Full time at night. Yeah, it's nice and quiet. And especially because we were the only airplane around, we got a direct routing uh, from, uh, let's say the Pyrenees to when we started entering, uh, Spanish airspace all the way to Malaga direct. So that saves a few minutes and it was nice and quiet and we had a cup of coffee. And all of a sudden I hear my captain asking, he was a very senior captain, uh, ex-military as well. And he says, hey, do you see that as well? And I was looking forward through my windscreen, which was full with- Never a good thing you want to hear in the cockpit. <laughs> no, it was actually in a very open way. Like, uh, do you see that as well? Do, do, any, any clue what it, could, what it could be? And I was looking through the windscreen. I was completely splattered with bugs and, 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 and dirt. And the moment you move your head a little bit left and right sideways like that, you can see the bugs moving and anything that's outside of the window, like other airplanes and traffic, it stays still. And it, all of a sudden I, I saw something um, solid. In it. it was very far away, but it was like a small um, speck. It was like a dark, dark shape, very far away. And once, once I saw it, I started to think about what it could have been. And my, my captain as well, we were both looking at it and really trying to 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 think logically about what it could be. First of all, we were flying very high, 41,000 feet. Uh, there's not much airline traffic, commercial traffic, that's flying uh, at the same altitude or even higher. Well, in this case, as you can see in the pictures as well, the object or whatever it was, it was relatively high above the horizon. So that means it must have been, well, at least, I think, 45,000 feet, maybe even higher, which is... Um, which is uh, rare to see, especially if, if it's if it's a commercial uh, traffic, as I said. Um, then again, there was no other traffic uh, ahead of us. We were not on, a, on an airway. We got a direct routing, mm -hmm. and it was exactly straight ahead uh, compared to the uh, uh, to the track of the airplane. Mm -hmm. And we were looking at it for maybe two or three minutes, and it didn't change uh, uh, relative bearing. It didn't change altitude. It didn't change shape, and it didn't grow larger or smaller. So that means whatever it is, especially when the airplane is flying uh, 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 close to the speed of sound, Mark 0.8 or whatever it was, that means that either the object is keeping the same distance ahead of us, if it's not changing shape or size or distance, and uh, it was keeping track, with, track of us, or it must have been extremely far away that our relative movement was not making any change. Mm. The shape was very strange as well. It was like a um, bit of a cigar shape. It was like a, a rectangular shape and it didn't fit anything that I've seen before. It happens sometimes when you're flying uh, exactly in the wake, let's say the wake 
contrail of another airplane that you see the contrail from yeah. behind and then you see these uh, the, these rounded edges these 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 curly uh, shapes but most of the time since the air is so unstable this disappears after one or two minutes or the airplane is just taking a different track and it just uh, vanishes but this whatever we saw was there it was backlit so and, and you basically we saw the shadow of it so it was within our atmosphere and it was staying exactly the same shape and size and distance for over an hour uh, all the way from the moment we entered Spanish airspace to uh, descend into Malaga where we descended into the clouds so after observing for maybe two or three minutes, we basically ruled out that it was another airplane because the contrail was just, well, let's put it differently. It, it couldn't have been a contrail because it was so stable and the shape was so strange. Uh, a weather balloon, uh, uh, well, normally weather balloons, they're, uh, they're elongated vertically um, and they're pretty uh, bright because the sun is often reflecting off them. Well, in this case, well, of course, the sun was already gone, but it was just so stable it had a, a, a elongated shape uh, horizontally and it it was it was as i said we uh, we saw it for over an hour and it must have been huge and very far away so we basically ruled that one out and after 10 minutes i just decided uh, my captain he just shrugged his shoulders and i decided to ask the air traffic controller we were talking with if there was any traffic ahead of us because we could basically rule out if there was if we could rule out anything uh, strange so the um, Madrid air traffic controller, he uh, he was really surprised. He said, oh, you guys are the only traffic uh, basically in Spain at this moment, especially at that altitude. What do you see? So I said, well, we're looking at this this object, whatever it is, and we were wondering if we're looking into the contrail of another airplane or if it's maybe a weather balloon. He said, no, there's no known traffic, nothing at all. And uh, uh, after maybe one minute, he came back to us and he said, well, military air traffic control um, wants to hear about your sighting uh, ASAP. So please contact them on separate frequency. And I contacted them on the second VHF radio we have and the military air traffic controller. Uh, he, I was expecting him to make fun of us, but it was quite the opposite. He sounded not really distressed, but he wanted to know everything that we saw. And he testified, well, he testified, he basically told us there is no known traffic on radar, primary, secondary radar in, 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 uh, uh, in Spain. Uh, there was no uh, military activity. There was no military traffic. There was no weather balloons because basically they, I guess they can track all the weather balloons. And uh, he wanted to know if we saw any change or, or, or if anything was happening. Is that unusual? Yeah, very for unusual. Them. Well, is it unusual for them to want to reach out to talk to you about something like that? Yeah, it's the first and only time I've I've experienced that. Mm -hmm. And it was not just the fact that he immediately wanted to know everything about it, but also he was so candid and forward about the fact there was no traffic, nothing going on there. And uh, I would expect, you know, if they don't take us serious, they just discard it. Or, you know, if he, if he would have uh, wanted to calm us down, he would have said, yeah, there's some military activity, just ignore it, which would have eased our minds as well. But in this case, it, was, it always struck me that, struck me that um, military air traffic control was so um, uh, actively involved in, in what we saw, which was uh, very interesting. And as I said, we saw the object for over an hour until we descended into Malaga, which is all the way to the southern part of the Spanish peninsula, until we descended into the clouds. And the object was just still there, same size, same distance, uh, same shape. And I took... It did not descend, though. It stayed at its altitude, yeah. as you could tell. Yeah. And um, I took two pictures, basically uh, within a time frame of 10 seconds. And uh, these images are now being analyzed by uh, Ipaco. Uh, which is run by French scientists working for uh, Gaipan, probably butchering the French pronunciation, but uh, these guys, they take these kind of uh, 
sighting series and very objectively. They, they analyze photographic material, video material, just to find out what it was. And this guy is now analyzing uh, the image already for, uh, for a few weeks. And I'm really, really looking forward to his results because he basically already saw that the file I gave him, the raw file from the camera, it's genuine, it's not manipulated, it's just a, a real picture. And now they're trying to find out uh, what it could have been, trying to, to, to maybe measure distance and, and, and relative size. And I'm looking forward to it because this was uh, the first and only time I've been able to actually document it with my camera, what I've, saw, what I've seen. And it was completely unlike anything else, like the moving lights or the falling lights. It was a, a physical thing, object, whatever it was. And uh, yeah, just looking forward to, to the results and hearing what it could have been. Is that image publicly available or are you waiting to get the results? It's a, yeah, it's publicly available. I'll I'll send it to you. Maybe you can uh, show the viewers in the okay. uh, in the video as well. And it's also available on my website. I have a separate page with uh, all kinds of sightings, both the unexplained, like this uh, unexplained case, but also a whole list of other explained cases. Mm. So um, as I said before, you know, I'd always try to analyze what I've seen. What I've seen, I try to um, yeah find find an explanation for all the stuff. And fortunately. A lot of stuff has been uh, has been explained so far, but this is still uh, a genuine unknown, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the results of the uh, the analysis. Very cool. Are there are there some in that known category now that either surprise you or are interesting, even though they're not you know anomalous anymore? Uh, yeah, actually, one other image is also now being analyzed by uh, by the same guys from Ipaco. Um, it's a picture. I took, I think it must have been 2020, uh, during day over the Atlantic Ocean, and I use a wide-angle lens to take pictures of the atmosphere and the sky. And there was a, almost a full moon in the sky as well, because I, I like the moon and I like to take pictures of the moon in comparison with the horizon. It gives some depth. Anyway, I was browsing through my images, uh, maybe even uh, six months ago, and on one of those images, I found a light streak next to the moon. Mm. And it's, uh, it was, it, it, it's a very small light streak in a couple of different colors. And I suspect it to be uh, a cosmic ray, which is one of these uh, uh, high-energy particles flying through the atmosphere. And uh, probably the camera sensor captured one of these uh, cosmic rays. Just at the moment, there was an exposure, and it shows as a as a as a as a light streak on the on the on the image. And I talked with one of these guys from Ipaco, and they said, "Well, we still want to analyze this picture because it might be like a, a benchmark for digital photography, where something very mundane like a cosmic ray is being captured." So it shows that uh, these pictures that I take are not even are not so much for analyzing uh, UAP or, or mysterious things, but some of those pictures capture something very mundane and very uh, useful for future references. Because if another pilot suddenly comes up with a picture, they have a really uh, good reference to what a cosmic ray looks like. So it might rule out a lot of uh, uh, nuisance uh, reportings. Yeah, that's a good point. And another, uh, maybe if if you don't mind, uh, there's another case where. Um, uh, I, I was able to document something uh, happening basically in the sky. We were flying with a 747 from uh, Europe to South America. We were flying basically between Africa and uh, South America, crossing the equator in the middle of the night. And fortunately, I had my camera already set up to take pictures of shooting stars and the, and the Milky Way. Mm -hmm. And I was chatting with my colleague about uh, space travel and uh, you name it. Just, it. The topic naturally grows in those directions if you see all the stars, etc. And I'm sitting on the right-hand seat. I was still co-pilot. And I see we're being overtaken by something, which is really strange because we were just completely alone in the, in the that part of the ocean. And at the same time, I'm looking at it, and it's, it's really weird because it's like a bundle of lights overtaking us. 
And the moment I look at it, I realize it's this must be very far away because it's uh, you can see it on the, the parallax with, uh, with with the other traffic. Normally, if there's another airplane close by, you can actually see it just uh, as you can, you can judge the distances. In this case, there was like a fireball with all kind of fireballs falling off, just overtaking us. And immediately I realized this was uh, something burning up in the atmosphere. It was not like a shooting star or a meteor because they go very fast. This was almost going the same speed as all the satellites that we normally see, like the ISS. And it must have been something burning up in the atmosphere. Space junk of some nature, you think? Yeah, and later on we found out because I published it again on social media and um, apparently it was picked up by the right people. And there was an astronomer, I think he's also a Dutch guy, and an, let's say an amateur astronomer, astronomer, and he's keeping track of a little space debris. And he came um, uh, across my sighting. He says, well, it makes sense with all the data I have here. It could be this Chinese booster from whatever rocket launched a couple of years before. And he, it was basically known that this kind of rocket debris was going to burn up somewhere in the, in the next 24 hours because they keep track of the the um, um, the, the slow decay in the de decay in uh, uh, how do you say this in orbit. orbit yeah. And in this case, it coincided exactly with uh, with the track of this space debris. And mm -hmm. we found out that it was uh, Chinese rocket debris. That was really cool. It was just um, in almost two minutes, it just crossed uh, the horizon in the far distance. And it burned up like that. But I happened to be looking at it and I happened to be taking pictures at that oh, moment. What are the odds? We are taking a lot of pictures. So actually, <laughs> it's quite big that there's something like that showing up. But it was, uh, yeah, it was, was pretty cool. Really cool, man. Capturing man-made, you know, objects coming back into space and burning up. Such like a, a, a unique item to catch on camera. Very yeah. cool. And also, uh, just if you don't if you don't mind me saying, I get a lot of people asking me, well, are you sure you didn't see Starlink? Because that's one of the things that a lot of pe people see nowadays. Well, first of all, yeah, yeah, as pilots, especially from flying at night from the cockpit, we see Starlink all the time, especially mm -hmm. just after launch. You see this whole train of lights. It's pretty cool to see, uh, but it's very easily easy to identify as, as being Starlink. Um, people say that, for example, the shooting lights that I've seen or the falling lights, uh, this happened long before Starlink was even, uh, e even thought of or even launched. So um, yeah, Starlink is being seen by a lot of pilots. Uh, the ISS is being seen by a lot of pilots. Uh, rocket debris burning up is being seen by a lot of pilots, but it is not even close to to the uh, the unexplained cases I've mm. uh, just presented to you. Fascinating. That's very cool, Christian. I appreciate you coming all the way over here to have this conversation with me. I hope you continue to fly safe, uh, and I look forward to seeing more of your pictures. Really appreciate it, Ryan. Thank you. Thank you.